Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. It's a complicated case. It's a case about the ambiguity of agency regulations. Think CMS. Now headed to the Supreme Court. You're going to learn more about this case when healthcare attorney Jessica Gustafson joins us later in the broadcast. Also on today's Monitor Monday, you're going to hear about another case, the whistleblower lawsuit involving prime healthcare. Famed healthcare attorney and whistleblower Mary Inman is standing by to report that developing story. Limiting access of Medicare patients to long-term acute care facilities by health insurance companies continues to be an issue. Standing by with his exclusive report on this problem is Marvin Mitchell. Nancy Beckley returns with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. I'm reporting from an airport, so sorry about any background noise today. You know, the regulation fund never ends for us. Last week, there was a great debate on a user group about those dreaded HIN notices. The HIN is a hospital-issued notice of non-coverage. The HIN-12 is used when the doctor determines a patient is stable to move to the next level of care and orders discharge, but the patient refuses either to go home or to a nursing facility. If the HIN-12 is issued and the patient wants to appeal, they can call the QIO and do that. If the QIO agrees the patient is stable to be discharged, the patient assumes financial liability beginning at noon the next day. Now, that's all straightforward, but the controversy is over what status the patient then has. Some advocated the patient's status changes to outpatient. A new encounter is started and the patient incurs outpatient charges. Others believe that the patient remains inpatient, the non-necessary days get reported with an occurrence span code, and the patient incurs inpatient charges. Because the answer wasn't readily apparent, two people reached out to the QOs and both were told that the patient becomes an outpatient and a new claim gets started. But since my wife was out of town, I spent the weekend doing some digging, and in the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, Chapter 3, it states the patient remains inpatient and the days get reported with a span code. What's the lesson here? Medicare billing is confusing, and getting the right answer is often challenging, so be careful out there. Now, last week I presented a case for all of you to ponder over the week, and today you get to vote. As a recap, it's a 95-year-old with an admission for heart failure in the last week who presented again with another exacerbation. The patient made it to the ICU. The hospitalist interviewed and examined the patient and dictated a history and physical. But prior to writing the admission order, the patient, who had a do not resuscitate order, developed ST elevation on the monitor and died. It seemed clear that the physician's intent was to admit the patient as an inpatient, but the order itself was never written. Now, CMS states in the regulation that an individual becomes an inpatient if formally admitted as an inpatient under an order for inpatient admission. No order seems to indicate no admission. 
But CMS also said it's no longer that they require a written inpatient admission order to be present in the medical record as a condition of party payment. But since there was a prior admission, if we bill this as an inpatient, this is not now not only a readmission, but it's an inpatient death. So the question you get to answer in a few minutes is do you, as a hospital, bill inpatient admission based on the intent to admit to get the DRG payment with any possible penalties, or do you bill outpatient because there is no order except the much lower reimbursement but not have a readmission or an inpatient death? So stand by to vote. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy, welcome back. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to be back in the saddle here at Monitor Monday, and I'm continuing my series on Targeted Probe and Educate. And a few weeks ago, I provided a Targeted Probe and Educate regarding the Novitas JL Medicare Administrative Contractor Review of Round 1 of therapy services, where basically I came away with the conclusion that therapy really was doing fairly well. 93% fared with a minor classification, which means that they could have passed at 100%, but CMS classifies it as 93%. Well, now the Novitas um, JHMAC, which includes Colorado, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Indian Health Services, came in uh, recently with their report for their targeted probe and educate round one. They selected 65 therapy providers, and there was an 80% minor classification, meaning you were, you know, exempted from moving forward on. Five total reviews had moderate, five total reviews had major, and three total reviews with insufficient samples. However, in this one, the denial reasons got a little bit steeper. The four denial reasons were medical necessity, which always seems to be present with therapy, number of units, in other words, the documentation didn't support the number of units submitted according to the Medicare eight-minute rule, and insufficient documentation, which means people did not respond to the ADR request, and billing errors. And David Glazer, this might be good for something that you would like to cover in the future. They described the billing errors of upon receipt of the ADR request, the provider deemed the service was billed an error to Medicare. So I guess they got the ADR and said, whoops, we don't even want to submit our documentation. We'll just tell them to take that bill away. So um, I just wanted to give that report, give some consideration to David. And now we're going to bring up the poll that Dr. Hurst just spoke about with his segment where he gave the context. So, In the case that was just presented by Dr. Hirsch, what do you think the hospital to do? And I would like everybody to vote as would Dr. Hirsch. It doesn't matter if you're in the hospital or not. So number one, build the inpatient. That was the clear intent of the physician, despite the absence of an admission order. Or number two, bill as an outpatient because there was no admission order and there is no reason to incur a possible penalty for a readmission and death. And Chuck, Dr. Hirsch will be back to discuss the results of the poll with David Glazer later in the segment. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast when Dr. Hirsch and David Glazer join us. And coming up on 8 Minutes After the Hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, 
Marvin Mitchell and our special guest, Jessica Gustafson. This is Monday. It's March 4th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's important information on a new healthcare publication focused specifically on the RACs and other third-party auditors. Introducing the Auditor Monitor. This essential guide is filled with the latest audit news, including all the RAC auditors and what issues they've been approved to audit. Learn about types of audits you can expect and how best to defend yourself. Learn more about hot topics like telehealth, 340B, and the Pepper Report. Auditor Monitor subscribers will receive one issue per quarter. Don't hesitate. Subscribe to Auditor Monitor, your complete source of healthcare auditing. Now available on the Rack Monitor Store. Thanks, Clark. And a programming note, there's an outstanding webcast on telehealth. It's coming your way Thursday, March 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. It's entitled, Telehealth, New Pathways to Increase Revenue and Maximize Compliance Risk. Learn more about this. Click on the handout tab of today's Monitor Monday. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And good morning, David. What's risky this morning? Good morning, Mr. Buck. So I guess this is instead what's lucky. So I'm lucky to be part of these broadcasts because I learn so much from my fellow panelists. But we don't always agree. And sometimes those disagreements provide the best opportunities to learn because it forces everyone to articulate their thought process more clearly. Um, As listeners and compliance professionals, I hope you will always keep an open mind and also ask questions that force us to explain ourselves. And be patient with me as I pause for a second so I can talk more clearly. So last week, Michael Lewis ended his segment with a statement with which I disagree. While discussing the frustration of private insurers who try to enforce a non-existent rule, he said, if they're breaking the rules, so can you. Now that isn't a principle I endorse. I'll concede that in game theory, research suggests that the best strategy in a prisoner's dilemma is tit for tat. Now, Prisoner's dilemma is when you and your friend are caught during a crime, and you must decide whether to confess or remain silent. Research says you should cooperate on the first round, and then on the next round, do whatever your partner did in the last round, hence the whole tit-for-tat thing. This is great for game theory, but in the real world, there's what you might call the basketball principle. The person who retaliates often faces the most consequences. In a highly regulated world, Breaking the rules intentionally is generally ill-advised. So, because I had a disagreement, I reached out to Michael and asked him what he meant. He explained that what he was really saying is that if someone breaches an agreement with you, that renders the agreement void. Now, I get his point, but in fact, many breaches of a contract don't entirely void the contract. They might allow you to terminate the agreement under some term in there or if the party breaches, but often there's an opportunity to fix the breach, um, or you might have the right to sue for damages. Um, So what do you do when a private insurance company tries to enforce a Medicare rule? This is a question a lot of people have asked. Worse yet, what do you do if they're trying to um, make up their own interpretation of a Medicare rule and then foist it upon you? Well, the answer depends a bit on whether or not you have a contract with the plan. If you have a contract with the plan, the first question is whether that contract gives the plan the right to impose the rule upon you. Unfortunately, it's quite possible that it does. In that case, you need to work with your contracting team to make sure that in the future, your contract gives you more leverage. If it doesn't give them the right, then you complain and you argue that they've breached the agreement. 
So if you don't have a contract with the plan, you have considerably more leverage. There are several possible responses, and you can try them all simultaneously. Uh, first, the plan almost certainly has some appeal mechanism. Use it. Next, use the patient as an ally. The patient might be able to speak with their employer, and if that employer is large, the employer may have some success in changing the insurer's behavior. And finally, the plan is regulated by the state. Depending on the state, it might be the insurance department or the commerce department, but there is some state agency that takes complaints about your insurer. It can be helpful to band together with other organizations in your area. Your state medical group managers association or hospital association or medical society will often be able to help you take on a rogue insurer. Now, when I suggest banding together to confront an insurer, hopefully a little voice in the back of your head says, wait, negotiating jointly can present antitrust problems. Now, that's usually true, but when a plan is breaking the rule, there's a special kind of antitrust exception called the Nora Pennington Doctrine that allows you to band together to seek state action to challenge it. Basically, there's an antitrust law protection for state action. So don't break the rules. Fight back using the legal tools at your disposal. So Chuck, my song today doesn't tie in with the topic, but it turns out that 33 years ago today, the number 33 song in the country was a song penned by Prince that really should be our show's theme music. While penned by Prince, it's performed by the Bengals, telling us that when we really get into it, it's just another Manic Monday. Thank you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Pedersen and Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature is minus four degrees. Limiting access of Medicare patients to long-term acute care facilities by health insurance companies, it continues to be a big issue. Here now with this exclusive report on this problem is Marvin Mitchell. Good morning, Marvin. Good morning, Chuck. Well, it's been my long-held opinion that health insurance companies exist to not pay claims. They're an investment tool for the investment class, and this is obvious in healthcare finance. Now, in the February 13 RAC Monitor, monitor article by uh, Dr. Howard Steen, uh, he said so well that limiting access to what we think are and violate Medicare benefits is a way Medicare Advantage plans retain income for investors. Now, I thought Advantage plan uh, return on investment was to be through efficiencies and strong primary care. The prerogative advantage plans to abridge benefits is a subject of discussion and disagreement even within Iraq Monitor editorial board. Now, mine, like most hospitals, uh, have deep penetration by advantage plans within their payer mix. You know, also expressed by Dr. Steen was that acute care hospitals must now contend with the uphill battle of getting authorization from Advantage plans to transition patients to long-term care, uh, long-term acute care hospitals, or LTACs, and their unique ex- expertise. Now, LTACs serve two main purposes. One, they're a safety valve for significant outlier lengths of stay, and by providing specialized care to beneficiaries that are not recovering quickly as hoped, now, particularly the ventilator-dependent patients. Now, there's a third, perhaps unintended benefit of freeing up precious acute ICU beds, 
Patients who need hospitalization but may take weeks to recover will otherwise occupy a bed needed for the burgeoning number of patients coming into the nation's ED. So simply adding more ICU beds is a very expensive solution. Now, when Advantage plans switch from per diem payment to a DRG structure, their financial motivations changed. There was no financial benefit to transitioning a patient to an LTAC. They felt the liberty to say that they had already paid for the hospitalization, and more than once a prior authorization nurse actually said to me that approving an LTAC is just a guarantee that there would be a long and costly hospitalization, and now they would have to pay separately, so authorization denied. So I'm thinking that it's time now to frame the argument in different terms. Advantage plan members are being deprived not just of a benefit, but medically necessary specialty expertise to achieve optimal outcomes. Again, Advantage plan members are being deprived not just of a benefit, but medically necessary expertise to achieve optimal outcomes. Now, LTAC transfers uh, authorization, getting that, is possible. Now, be prepared to arrange a peer-to-peer conversation between the attending and the Advantage Plan medical director. In fact, insist upon it. From both parties, present the transfer as an outcome-based decision. Explain the patient's specific expected outcome. Uh, Hospital case manager, be bold in involving the patients and the representatives in the effort. Their voices are instrumental in getting the payer to do the right thing. Provide them the payer's member services number. Remember, Advantage Plan membership is by voluntary enrollment. They spend millions on marketing. And in my hometown, a word from an unhappy customer starts a wildfire. So managing to optimal wellness in the primary care arena is a clear advantage that Medicare Advantage plans have over fee-for-service. That is the Advantage Plan's mission. Cutting benefits was not. Make it a quality issue. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Marvin. That was Marvin Mitchum. Mr. Mitchell is the Director of Case Management and Social Work at San Gregorio Memorial Hospital out here in California. Prime Healthcare Services will pay more than $65 million to settle a whistleblower lawsuit that accused the California hospital chain of Medicare fraud. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman is standing by with that live story. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. A few weeks ago, on February 14th, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania announced that Prime Healthcare Services and its founder and CEO, Dr. Prem Reddy, will pay $1.25 million to settle claims under the False Claims Act that two prime healthcare hospitals in Pennsylvania, Roxborough Memorial Hospital and Lower Bucks Hospital, billed Medicare for patients who were admitted when they could have been treated on an outpatient basis and upcoded patient diagnoses to increase Medicare payments. According to the DOJ press release, upon acquiring the two hospitals in 2013, Prime admitted emergency room Medicare patients for costly and medically unnecessary one- and two-day overnight hospital stays instead of treating the patients in less costly outpatient service and or keeping them under observation, and also upcoded inpatient diagnoses, billing for more serious conditions than patients actually had to increase Medicare payments. 
The lawsuit was initiated by two anonymous whistleblowers, Jane Rowe and Jane Doe, identified as a current and former employee of the Roxborough Hospital, one a point-of-care coordinator and the other an application analyst, as well as a Delaware corporation called Stop Community Hospital Upcoding, LLC, which was formed for the purpose of bringing the whistleblower lawsuit. According to the lawsuit, the following are some of the improper practices in which Prime is alleged to have engaged. Retraining caregivers not to diagnose patients with conditions associated with low Medicare reimbursement rates and coaching caregivers to document symptoms associated with comparable conditions with higher reimbursement rates under the guise of querying. Forbidding staff from designating patients as on an observation status in order to receive higher reimbursement associated with inpatient care, and discharging patients prematurely and refusing to readmit recently discharged patients in an effort to increase Medicare reimbursement. This is the second settlement against Prime Healthcare and Dr. Reddy in the past seven months for similar Medicare fraud allegations. In August 2018, Prime Healthcare settled similar allegations regarding 14 of its California hospitals who were alleged to have improperly billed Medicare for admitting patients who only required outpatient care and billed Medicare for treating more severe diagnoses than the patients actually had. The companies paid just under $62 million to settle those claims and Dr. Dr. Reddy personally paid over $3 million. The California lawsuit was initiated by another whistleblower, Karen Bernston, who worked as the Director of Performance Improvement at one of the California Prime Hospitals where the allegedly improper inpatient admissions took place. Ms. Bernston received an award of over $17.2 million. The DOJ press release regarding last month's settlement involving Prime's two Pennsylvania hospitals makes a point of noting that all of the defendants had entered into a corporate integrity agreement with the United States Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General in August 2018, which required Prime to engage in significant compliance efforts over the next five years, including retaining an independent review organization to review the accuracy of the company's claims for services to Medicare beneficiaries. Prime Healthcare is a nationwide healthcare provider that operates 45 hospitals and employs over 40,000 people. With 14 Prime hospitals in California and now two in Pennsylvania having come under scrutiny for these same practices on opposite coasts, it suggests that the practices may have been system-wide. Therefore, we may not have heard the last from Prime Hospitals and Dr. Reddy as it relates to ER visits and upcoding. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Edmund. Mary was calling in live from London, where she's a partner in the London office of Constantine Cannon. It's a complicated case. It's a case about the ambiguity of agency regulations. Think CMS. Now headed to the Supreme Court, health care attorney Jessica Gustafson reports our lead story. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, Chuck. In just a few weeks, on March 27th, the U.S. Supreme Court is scheduled to hear argument in the case of Kaiser v. Wilkie, which is a case arising from a veteran's claim for disability benefits that the United States Department of Veterans Affairs denied. The dispute centers on the meaning of the term relevant as used in the regulations. In the underlying case, the Court of Appeals acknowledged that the appellant and the VA both had advanced reasonable, albeit irreconcilable, interpretations of the regulation. 
On that basis alone, the court found the regulation was ambiguous and held that under the hour deference standard, the case ought to be resolved in favor of the agency's or the VA's interpretation. The sole issue on appeal to the Supreme Court is the fate of the hour deference standard, which is sometimes also referred to as the Seminole Rock deference standard. Under the hour deference standard in litigation, an agency's interpretation of its own regulation is controlling unless it is plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation. The hour deference standard applies to an agency's interpretation of an ambiguous regulation. An agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute is governed by a similar standard, which is better known, and it is known as the Chevron deference standard. As you all know, the healthcare industry is highly, highly, highly regulated, and it is replete with sub-regulatory guidance that serves to interpret an agency's regulations. Such guidance documents include, but aren't limited to, of course, OAG fraud alerts, advisory opinions, special bulletins, CMS manuals and coverage articles, and local coverage determinations, or LCDs. Additionally, as in Kaiser v. Wilkie, an agency will at times advance an interpretation of its own regulation in the course of litigation or another dispute without first publishing a guidance document. In my own practice, I recently witnessed the District of Columbia Medicaid program attempt to advance an overbroad interpretation of the term overpayment in the course of an appeal of a Medicaid RAC audit determination by relying on the hour deference standard when the term was not defined in the regulations. The hour deference standard has proven controversial, of course. Supporters of hour deference say that an agency that drafted a regulation is in the best position to know what it means. Supporters of the doctrine also argue that it makes it easier for courts to review challenges to an agency's interpretation of its regulations because the court must only determine whether the agency's interpretation is reasonable rather than whether it is the best possible interpretation. However, there are criticisms of our deference. Within the Kaiser v. Spokey appeal to the Supreme Court, the appellant raised three primary arguments. First, by deferring to an agency's interpretation of its own rule, an agency is incentivized to adopt broad and vague regulations in order to maximize its interpretive freedom. An agency is potentially able to exploit ambiguity and change policy through informal issuances that avoid the requirements of notice and comment rulemaking. Second, a basic principle of constitutional law is separation of powers, and that is not supported by our deference. Our arguably represents a transfer of judicial power to an agency to interpret its own regulation. The Constitution vests judicial power in the, of the United States with the judiciary, which requires the exercise of independent judgment. Third, the appellant also argued that stare decisis, which is the legal principle of determining points in litigation according to precedent, should not apply because our deference constitutes merely an interpretive tool and does not serve the public interest. Calls for the Supreme Court to reconsider the our deference standard date back many, many years. Soon we'll have resolution as to the deference to which an agency's sub-regulatory guidance will be entitled in the context of litigation. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Jessica. That was uh, Jessica Gustafson. Jessica is a founding shareholder with the Health Law Partners. Now it's time for the results of the Modern Money Listener Survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley, and uh, standing by is David Glazer. Dr. Hirsch had presented a case in his segment regarding whether a patient should come back in as an inpatient or as an outpatient following the expiration of the patient. 59% of our listeners today, Dr. Hirsch, 
feel they should bill inpatient, that that was the clear intent of the physician, despite the absence of an admission order. And 40% of our listeners today feel it should be billed as an outpatient. There was no admission order, and there's no reason to incur a possible penalty for readmission and death. Dr. Hirsch, your comments? I think it's fascinating. You're more fascinating though, is that about 25% of people chose not to put in a claim at all because they didn't vote. But I think it's clear that this is an interpretive issue and some hospitals are going to be risk that penalty and some choose not to. David, you want to comment on this? I think you do have a choice. I mean, the most important thing to me here is I think whichever route you choose is defensible. I don't think you're legally compelled to go one route or the other. And speaking of comment, Dr. Hirsch, did you have a comment you wanted to offer on Mr. Mitchell's segment? I do. When the article that he was referencing by Dr. Stein was published, I received an email from a medical director at a Medicare Advantage plan who laid out for me several examples of patients referred for LTAX authorization who were clearly inappropriate for LTAX. Patients who were unstable on pressors, one patient who they referred and then died the same day. So we have to remember that just like Mary pointed out with prime healthcare, sometimes the bad apples ruin it for all of us. They're pushing back on LTAX because hospitals in some places are pushing too hard to get patients out and preserve their DRG payments. Part of my point was to make sure that you make the case and that it is a cogent case that uh, you can take based on outcomes. It can't be on anything else. Thanks, Mr. Mitchell and Dr. Hirsch. And back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you so very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Mary Inman, David Glazer, Marvin Mitchell, and our special guest, Jessica Gustafson, and I want to thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday, and I want to thank Paul Spencer for sitting in for me last Monday. Thanks, Paul, very much. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us today, everybody. Have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.